Good morning, Grace Chapel. It's so good to see you. Uh, question. <laughs> and then over the last couple of weeks, I, you know, as you, as you look at the media, as you listen to news, as you just listen to what people are saying, uh, there's, there's an awful lack of this. What would a world without forgiveness look like? <laughs> what would a world without forgiveness look like? Um, we would expect uh, what? Constant wars and rumors of wars. Uh, we would expect re- revenge and retribution killings. Uh, just be constant conflict, right? Uh, we would expect the dissolution of uh, relationships, families, marriages, and all but the most casual of relationships would remain. Court systems would clog. Um, Everyone would want to seek to live and work alone. Uh, What would a world without forgiveness look like? Yeah, yeah, we'd probably settle for and adopt a a universal language of pre-approved, non-offensive slogans and platitudes. Um, And they would keep you out of trouble with almost pretty much about everybody. Um, You would occasionally break out of your bubble of self-indulgent comfort in order to share a few words uh, to feed the insatiable appetite of public shaming and outrage. In short, a world without forgiveness would increasingly be characterized by disconnected, self-righteous bitterness. Uh, Hmm. This all sounds eerily familiar. The effects of our today's society and its abandonment of forgiveness and any concept of what that means is, is clear and it's appalling. So why can't we turn the other cheek? Church? I mean, I completely get I completely understand why someone without Jesus Christ cannot forgive. Totally, totally see that. For all of us in this room, we were once there. But followers of Jesus, uh, saints saved, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God Himself, members of the kingdom of God, why do we in the church still struggle to break free of this cycle and that there's this lack, this attitude of no forgiveness. Uh, Maybe you've already discovered as you've journeyed on in your, your spiritual journey in Jesus Christ that in order to take practical steps to make Um, and maintain a healthy attitude and an habitual habit of forgiveness in your life, you have to be reminded often of how you found forgiveness in the first place. Do you find that? I find I need this reminder like daily, all the time. So what's wrong with our culture? Um, Why is it so difficult to forgive? Well, everybody has an opinion in and outside of the church. And it can prove difficult for some people to exactly put their finger on precisely what the ingredients of the problem are. But most people are pretty sure that the absence of forgiveness is usually the other person's problem. It's one thing we pretty much agree on. The Bible, where we go every Sunday and hopefully through the week you do also, the Bible tells us what the ingredients are exactly. 
We may struggle to put our finger on it, but God does not struggle. He knows the taste. He knows what causes the issues in our society today. And he's taken the time to write down the recipe and to share it with us out of his enormous, immense love for you and for me. And this morning, I want us to take a look at four primary ingredients that have created this lack of forgiveness in our culture, but specifically, I want us to look at the church, at you and I, members of the family of God, children of God through our faith in Jesus Christ, and look at why there might be a lack of forgiveness even in our own church family. Number one, people don't see their need for God's continued grace. I mean, at salvation, it was great, but I'm okay now. I'm in. Uh, Jesus made it abundantly clear that there is a direct connection between comprehending our own forgiveness, just how desperately we need God's grace, and how well we forgive other people. It's a direct connection. Let's remind ourselves from our Savior's own mouth as we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And I said when we went through that last year, we went through the Sermon on the Mount in detail, that we would be coming back to this over and over and over again until Jesus, the deliverer of that sermon, comes again. Matthew 6, verse 12, in the middle of the Lord's prayer, the model prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples, this is how you pray, he says, he gives them the example, and pray this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. A few verses after the prayer, after Jesus delivers that model prayer, Jesus explains that particular part of the prayer. It's in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And because there is this direct connection between comprehending the depth of my own forgiveness and how well I am able to forgive other people, I need to acknowledge a very common attitude that we sometimes portray, exudes off of us, that comes across, and it's this, why should I forgive you? You're just going to do it again. Why should I forgive you if I don't need forgiveness myself? Do we really want to come across that way? Do we really even believe that's true? I hope not. Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 7, the next chapter after that, in verse 2, he said, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Note to self. (laughs) And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus means for us to hear this equation he's just given as a warning, but often we don't heed the warning. We don't heed the warning unless we can be honest about our own failings and our own sins in our own life instead of always pointing the finger at other people, that that's the problem. I talked about self-revelation with a, a believer, a fellow believer in Jesus Christ this last week. And we both agreed how we so need that self-revelation of seeing, us, seeing ourselves for who we really are. And it can be painful, right? But we need it from God's perspective. 
When we start with the presumption that we are near perfect, and we always use the in Christ, right? Everyone else will be weighed horribly. They'll be seen wanting. We may even be guilty, and I hope this doesn't happen, of, of a proverb in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, where this, uh, the prov- proverbial writer says, a man's own folly ruins his life. But what does he do? Yet his heart rages against the Lord. We blame others. We point the finger back at God for our own created misery. We've got to be, understand that and see ourselves for who we really are. So, what are the ingredients? Ingredient number one, we don't see our own need, continued need for grace. And there's various reasons for that. Um, we, most, I think the most prominent primary one is that we, we forget the depths of the grace that saved us in the first place. And number two, the second ingredient God gives us is we people have an oversized view of ourselves. Even in the church, maybe more so in the church. Uh, When we remove God from the picture, either in a statement as most of the world has already done and is doing, or in practice how some within the church who call themselves the church have already done, our heads swell to to fill the picture. It's so dangerous when Christians think of themselves in this high, mighty way. Um, Sometimes we think of ourselves as the God to whom David confesses in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Have you noticed how we can sometimes take on the crimes of the world as being against us? Not primarily an affront to God, It's about Him. Every marginalization, every error of judgment, every thoughtless word becomes an offense against me. And with the advance of social media, oh my, now everybody thinks that they must play a part in rectifying it. Pointing out sin is one thing. We're called to do that. And it's actually pretty simple if you're reading God's Word and applying it to your life. Even a caveman can do it. But offering the one and only solution is bold. And I see lots of opinions. I see lots of solutions being offered, but rarely are they including the one and only, the one to whom we sang those praise words just moments ago. And the vehemence, have you noticed that? The anger of some of the reactions to anything but my way of thinking. (laughs) Like those so evident in this cancel culture movement that's taken our, our country by storm. Any objection is demonized immediately. And there's no climate for discussion. This level of reaction only makes sense when I as an individual sit as a larger-than-life representative for all of humanity, when I become the dispenser of the justice. 
And unfortunately, too many people in the church act the same way. We do it under the cloak of God, the Bible, morality as we see it. So I thought, let's bring it on home, because I'm going to read a major portion from God's Word to you right now, and let this soak in. It's Paul writing to the Ephesian church. Remember, we saw them in Revelation. They're a church that over time lost their first love, forgot who they were and how they got there. Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you... You must walk no longer as the Gentiles do. Don't walk the way the world does. In the futility of their minds, it's garbage. It's it's hopeless. They are darkened in their understanding, but you're not, is his insinuation. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. They can't help it. It's due to the hardness of their heart. Is your heart hard? They have become callous. You all know what calluses are. Take away the sensitivity. Take away the feeling. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. There's a definition for our society. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There you go. This is what it ends up looking like. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Why would you ever want to go back there? (laughs) I I love how Paul does this little aside that's picked up in the English translations, usually with brackets or or a dash. But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming (laughs) that you actually have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and boldness. I'm assuming that that's where we're at. That's something that I assume when I get up every Sunday morning to teach and to preach, that many of us in this room are on the same page, have been saved, know this new life, Therefore, Paul says, if this is true, if this is who we really are in Jesus Christ, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. That means if you need to ask for forgiveness, you better do it. And if you need to give it, dispense it. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So why do we work? So that we have enough for ourselves and to share. Yeah. Isn't that, what a concept. I work to save. No, 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 no. I work to share. Okay. Wow. What a mind blower. No, no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So that means most of us are going to have to get off Facebook. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. And I, 
I take it there, Paul's saying, there are times you just keep your mouth shut. If it doesn't fit the occasion, don't say anything. That it may give grace to those who hear it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It pretty much covers the whole spectrum. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and here it is, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But we do not see our further need for God's grace. We have an oversized view of ourselves. And the third ingredient, no one asks for forgiveness anymore. Have you noticed that? I have. To ask for forgiveness today is a sign of weakness. To wave the white flag is to give yourself over to the mercy of your opponent. But surrender becomes easy, easy, easy when amnesty flows freely. What I mean by that is if I believe that there is real forgiveness to be had, I'm more likely to ask for it. That is hardly the case in our country today. People do not ask for forgiveness because they know that true forgiveness won't be granted. There's always going to be strings attached. It's always going to be dragged up again. Or it's just not going to be given flat out because, no, you're on the other side, never going to forgive you. Our rules of warfare in our interactions with our own neighbors are barbaric and terrifying. Give no quarter. Take no prisoners. This fight mentality. Where, does, where is that in the Bible? Offenders are cast out. Careers are ended. Friendships are severed permanently. When you and I shut the door to the possibility of asking for forgiveness, we will find that we've closed off the door in our own ability to give forgiveness to other people. I often come to God with 1 John 1, 9. Do you? I find this is a very repetitive verse in life. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, written to believers by John the Apostle in 1 John. And you know what the flip side to this is, right? After, after you read this verse, is that people don't think they need to ask for forgiveness. I, I haven't done anything wrong. Why would I have to ask for forgiveness from you? So John cleverly anticipates this with the follow-up verse in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and His Word is not in us. God's list of ingredients to what our problems are is growing, but there's one more, the fourth one. I said there were four. Are you keeping track? Okay. We don't forgive because we have a culture where it's speak your truth. Have you heard this? Just, yeah, amen, amen, yeah. just speak your truth. Um, this allows for differences. Oh, yes, it does, <laughs> but not right and wrong. 
And that's the problem. You are what you decide to be. <laughs> what? If you only knew what I was thinking right now. What does Pete want to be? Well, I'm going to be it. Because make your own reality. How's that working out for you? These are the mantras of our culture, and it's embraced. It's in the church, but it's not in the Bible. Our world's message of ultimate self-determination, right? You get to call the shots and make things the way you like it. It creates this wide, ambiguous ground of moral shades of, of gray. It's vast. It's like, it's like, like someone said, it's like, you know, trying to make jello stick to the wall. I am enabled under this view to, to view my behavior and my speech towards you as this progressive unfolding of my journey to self-discovery. So don't hold it against me. I'm just, I'm just get going along in this so I can just say and do whatever I want. It's even popular in some churches. I am blown away when I read the, the, the statements by church leaders who, who have incorporated this garbage into their theology for their church. A, a, a big example of that is Bethel Church in Redding, California. They've assimilated this kind of New Age thinking. People say in this journey of self-discovery that they travel alone. They're part of this big oneness, but they're, they're an individual, so it precludes any judgment from the outside. Or, when you get into more church and, and spiritual settings, um, I travel with a spirit guide. Have you heard that one? I have an angel guide. Therefore, I have special insight don't you dare disagree with my angel. But from God's perspective, which is the only perspective that really counts and can only be seen through the lens of His precious Word, for me to ask for forgiveness in today's climate or for you to give it assumes a higher standard to which we both must submit and people in our world today aren't going to submit to that. In our world where behavior merely reflects the different levels of self-expression, to ask for forgiveness would be for me to think the unthinkable, to ask the unthinkable. That means I'm admitting to being bad. Not just doing bad, but if I have to ask your forgiveness, then I am admitting I'm bad. And the world can't handle that truth. And it's a truth found in God's Word. Old Testament, New Testament, look it up. It, it's, isn't it interesting how being bad is how it was always traditionally understood? But now we as humans are much more enlightened, aren't we? Yeah, we realize that. So to repent now 
has risen to the level of negating my value as a human being. Why would he ever want to repent? We're all good, right? We've all got this divine spark inside of us. Um, just needs to be fanned a little bit. We're all going to a better place. Everybody is. We're all evolving into this grander existence. Uh, so there's no need to ask for forgiveness along the way. That's counterproductive. So what is the solution to our lack of forgiveness? Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, where we started. And it can prove tricky to those of you here today who claim free grace. I, I understand. Jesus said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That sounds a whole lot like my receiving grace and my receiving forgiveness from God is contingent on me first giving it to others. Doesn't it? First glance? It's like, it's like works salvation. And we know that that's Right or wrong? Very good. Okay, good, good, good. That was an easy question, right? Work salvation is very good. But remember the context when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount last year. Jesus is teaching about children in the kingdom and how they should behave in the kingdom. Not so much how you get into the kingdom, but more, oh, so you Jews, you believe that you're in because you are Abraham's children. Well, then this is what it would look like. Of course, people in the crowd would be going, oh, that's not what it looks like. Jesus was offering them the kingdom through himself. Jesus' later parable in Matthew chapter 18, it's a parable of the unforgiving servant, helps untangle this knot even a little bit more. In the parable, remember there's this servant, and he, he owes this huge debt to his master, and his, his, his master forgives this massive debt. And what does the servant do immediately after being forgiven? He goes out, and Jesus says he chokes. He takes a, a lesser servant by the throat, a man who owes him money, and it's a relatively little bit of money that this guy owes him. And as a result of the servant's cruelty, the master seems to change his mind. Okay, the debt was forgiven, but not anymore. And he throws the servant in jail until he pays back everything. You see, there are consequences to our actions. And Jesus' point is that his forgiveness is the starting point. If we can't forgive others, it's simply just a direct reflection on our failure to understand what Jesus Christ has forgiven us of. To put it another way, there's no way that this servant in the parable in Matthew chapter 18, or you and I for that matter, could possibly ever think of demanding back a couple hundred bucks unless you and I or that servant truly has no concept of what being forgiven trillions of dollars means. It's psychologically impossible. 
So God, as He always does, He provides the solution to our lack of forgiveness. If we remember who we are and remember who is running the show, forgiveness does become easier and it becomes more spiritually natural under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. First of all, there's only two things here, if you're keeping count. How does God provide this solution? He tells us to right-size our own role in His kingdom instead of supersizing. We are reminded of our role through singing spiritual songs together, especially. We're reminded of our role through reading God's Word, and, and while we're reading God's Word, to be praying over God's Word, praying to the Father for illumination so we can see, understand, and apply. We, we were reminded of our role through just hanging out with other brothers and sisters and being humbled together as we talk and encourage each other about, about our precious faith. There is a king, there is a ruler, and he's not us. There is one who executes justice perfectly every time. And God is the one accountable to holding up God's standards. We just live for his pleasure and do as we're told. (laughs) It really is that simple. And that kind of kind of takes us off the hook, doesn't it? Can you imagine if you were working in a corporation and you were tasked by your boss to deliver an undesirable memo to your coworker? We'll go call him Larry, all right? So your boss says, I want you to give this memo to Larry. And you're like, okay, you're my boss. I got I to do this. Larry hears the words of the memo. You, you, have, to, you have to read it to him. And he's like this erupting volcano spewing into your face. He fumes. He cusses. And then he tells you flatly, I'm not going to do it. That's what he tells you. I won't accept it. I don't even think it's true. You might agree with the memo that you were tasked to pass along, or you might agree with Larry. But it doesn't matter in this particular situation because you'll be a little hurt, a little put out by Larry, but you'll return and go do your work and you'll be grateful you're not the boss. (laughs) But with delivering God's memo, our God is more than capable to take care of himself. And he's more than capable to look out for you and for me in the tasks that he has given us to do. There is a gospel message. It is so distorted in our world today, but there is a gospel message, a life-giving memo from God himself. It really is good news. It's God's, God's news of eternal life now and forever. It comes through trusting, putting your faith in his son's sacrifice on the cross for your sin. It's God's good news that you will not have to face the bad news of a final coming judgment that's guaranteed if you place your faith in Jesus Christ's payment for that judgment. But the world doesn't like the bad news part of the memo. 
that there is a debt that has to be paid, that we are bad and we need forgiveness. The world craves the darkness. Jesus said that. John said that. It rejects the indictment God's memo brings to the choices they're making in life. The world typically won't welcome the news as good, even though that's the sincere intent of the person delivering the message. As children called by God, you and I have been tasked and enabled by the Holy Spirit of God to penetrate our dark world with God's light. Forgiveness, ours first and then to those we encounter, is a huge part of being that light. God's solution to our lack of forgiveness, number one, was right-size your own role in God's kingdom. And the last one is, number two, see the costliness of our own sin to Jesus Christ. This happens to me every month on the first Sunday of the month when we take communion. This happens to me every time I open up God's Word and read of His sacrifice on the cross. The costliness. You know, debt our country is in debt. I, 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 can't even, I can't even tell you what the number is because it, it, every week it gets bigger. And people are in debt financially. Debt doesn't disappear just because we want it to. Oh, newsflash. <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice, everybody? What if, if somebody came up and said, I'm taking care of that debt? What would your response be? Woohoo! Okay, so no one's going to do that. I've lived above my means for years. I'm not. I'm not making a confession now. I'm, I'm giving an illustration. All right. But I do live in America. I've lived above my means for years, and I've accumulated debt. And I've come to a place in my life, and I've talked it over with my wife, and we're going to change that trajectory. Just, it's just wise. It's just smart. But while I can choose my future spending habits, I can change those, I can't cancel this present debt. I have no ability to do that. I can't print more money because that would be counterfeiting. That's wrong. I would so love a new beginning through some kind of debt forgiveness. It would give me that jump start that I need, right? And apparently our country has been printing money for decades in an attempt to make things disappear. It's not working out well. Is there really any such thing as a debt forgiveness program? Think about it. I know some people who have been blessed with a debt forgiveness. It's very uncommon, very unusual, but even then, the one to whom the money was owed had to absorb the debt on their behalf, right? Got to go somewhere. Debt forgiveness costs somebody the debt amount every time. 
our debt to God for our sin, our death payment, doesn't disappear just because God wants it to. Canceling any debt always means somebody has to absorb it somewhere. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did God do this? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, namely eternal death and separation from God and all that is in His plan for eternal life living. We weren't headed there. God canceled the record of that debt. This He set aside. What did God have to absorb in order to do this setting aside, nailing it to the cross. And remember, the absorption of my debt was not an it. He's referring to the, the debt here. The absorption of my debt, of your debt, was a he, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. Nailed to the cross while he took on that debt what was the result? He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in Him. The rulers of darkness lost their threat of death on us. The fear of death has been wiped away. I watched the the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when it first came out in theaters during Easter, 2004. That's a long time ago. It contained a brutal depiction of Jesus on the cross. I haven't been able to watch that scene since. This is me. I don't know about you. And one of the reasons that we avert our eyes from the cross is because it's ugly isn't it? It's not ugly in an abstract way like, a, like a, a muddy puddle or dirt on a white couch is something that's not pleasant to look at. The cross is ugly in an intimate way because it implicates every one of us personally. We're implicated in its ugly, awful costliness. So shouldn't we find it hard when we come together or when we study God's Word privately and we're meditating on our role in the cross of Jesus Christ in our life personally, shouldn't we find it hard to then go out and vent against someone else created in the image of God on Facebook or over a family meal? Shouldn't it be hard for us to hold a grudge? to have any bitterness within us at all against especially a brother or sister in Jesus Christ 
who we're going to live with forever. Shouldn't we weep for each other when there's a spiritual need or even a spiritual failing? If we know and remember often, like we're doing today, if we know and remember often not only what we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, but what we are being forgiven every day for eternity in Jesus Christ, and, and, and what the costliness of that was, the countless cost. And if we know and remember that often, won't we, won't we find our own forgiveness flowing more easily to others? Won't we see it in a completely different perspective, perspective that it's not about me, it's about God and what He is doing on this planet? Maybe the better question is, what would a world with God's forgiveness look like? Would you rise with me? We're going to pray to our most precious and gracious and holy Heavenly Father, and then we're going to respond together in worship and song. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for the salvation that's ours through Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. First and foremost, You are an awesome, holy God. We bow before You in humble adoration. We're enthralled with the salvation we have been gifted with. We stand amazed that you use us, even in our frailties, day in and day out. And Lord, we pray for us to take on Jesus' spirit of humility, while at the same time with boldness proclaiming your truth. And Lord, that balance escapes us so often. We depend on you. We, we pray for that kind of wisdom and that kind of discernment that our world may know that you are God and that you have provided the only way through your Son and Savior. Lord, that's our prayer. That's what we long for. That's what we work for. And we pray it in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen.